Hello, robots, and welcome to this week's episode of Remedial Studies. We are going back to our remedial read-along series, and Rachel and myself, that is Hannah, you know, <laughs> we're going to be talking about the fifth element. The Fifth Elephant. I almost said The Fifth Element. Like, I've seen that movie, but I haven't. No, like, for real. I almost have been calling it that, too, in the past week. But we are for sure talking about The Fifth Elephant by Terry Pratchett. And we're very excited to come back to the world of Discworld and some of our favorite characters, which are The Watch. So, Rachel, you want to give the people a quick... A quick rundown of what happens I in this mean, book? I mean, we do nothing quickly on this show, but I will try my best. So, The Fifth Elephant is um, the fifth City Watch novel, and it is the continued adventures of Samuel Vimes, commander of the Ankhmore Pork City Watch and Duke of Ankh, as he is sent to the remote region of Uberwald by the patrician as an ambassador to the coronation of um, a dwarf that is the new low king in this area. If I remember correctly, Uberwald is the ancestral home of the dwarves. Like, there's a lot of dwarves in Ankhmore Pork that come from this region. He brings along Cheery and Detritus. I want to believe some of this was out of spite because <laughs> Detritus is a troll. The, troll. the trolls and the dwarves are at war. And Cheery as we have met her through the few books that she's been in, and she kind of goes against the typical gender expectations of a lot of dwarves. In dwarf culture, there's no real deviation for gender expression. Like, everybody presents the same way, and they're assumed to be male. Or even that might be too much. They, they don't really have a concept of, of a binary in the same way we would think about it. But Cheery F and a lot of dwarves in Ankhmore Pork, after seeing how... The other races sort of play and present with gender. They want to be like, well, we want to be female and we want to be female in this specific way. And some people don't like that. This is something that has previously been played for laughs that is now not funny in typical <laughs> Terry Pratchett form. Um, but the big thing in Uberwald is the fat deposits and the mines that the dwarves run that support that industry. Because apparently in the far-flung past... There was, in fact, a fifth elephant supporting the Discworld on top of Artuin, the world turtle. But the fifth elephant crashed into this region and over the, over the centuries and, and millennia was eventually buried. And that is how there's all these huge fat deposits. There's also some werewolves. There's some vampires. Uberwald, to me, seemed very classic like Victorian vampire story setting mm -hmm. with yeah. dwarves. <laughs> very, very fictionalized Romania. Yes, very much. But Sam Vimes brings his wife. He brings a couple of people to come chill out. There's also someone from the Assassin's Guild that I believe Vetinari sends with him. Yes. <laughs> and under the guise of a valet <laughs> until they get attacked on the road and they have to like kill people. Which, surprisingly, they don't actually do a lot of in these books, so it gets, like, kind of dark for a moment. But there's a subplot 
there's sort of there's a lot of concurrent subplots going on in this book that all kind of converge to a point at um at the end and one of them is carrot turns in his resignation when he finds out that angua has run away to uberwald because uh the werewolf that is at the head of this conspiracy wolfgang is uh her brother and she's like well my family's in the shit i should probably do something about that and carrot is kind of gets gaspoed who's this stray dog that we've met a couple of times and he's like well we're gonna go find her and this is actually the first time we see carrot get kind of no nonsense in a way that you're like he's gonna crack <laughs> like somehow some way that niceness is gonna stop and it becomes vaguely nefarious in a way that's very interesting that i hope we talk about later but because carrot is gone there's now a power vacuum in the watch and v- veterinary appoints fred colon <laughs> As the acting captain, he becomes increasingly strict, paranoid. He punishes people for these minor offenses that nobody actually did. He just thinks that they did. And it also gives him this position where he can enforce the nefarious, racist ideologies that he himself holds that are casual most of the time. But when he's given power... It's one of those things. There's a lot of things in this book that were played for laughs in previous books that are now just kind of not funny. (laughs) One of them is Fred Colon being a dick. But the whole book, the main plot, centers around something called the Scone of Stone, which is, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, I read this kind of quickly. It's basically like this symbol of the Low King. And it's like, if you hold this stone, you basically have the rulership of all these dwarves. There's something in Alkmore Pork, I believe it's like the Dwarf Bread Museum or something. Because dwarves and bread, we don't have time to get into that, but dwarves and bread, man. Dwarves and bread. Origi- in, in the Bread Museum, there was only a replica of the stone. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, it was only a replica. There was allegedly the real one was supposed to be in this mine that Vimes goes to see. And Vimes has to be a duke, and he hates being a duke. He really hates being a duke, because he hates the fake. He, he, he sees it as being fake, I think. The whole idea of diplomacy doesn't ring true for him, because it's basically lying. <laughs> I think he says it's lying, but for a better class of people. Oh, yeah. Which is, that's, that, that's true. Um, that's, that's pretty true. But he he reverts back to his policeman instincts. He's never not a policeman, Arvimes. He gets some trouble over the course of the book. Because, of course, he's not, as they say, within his jurisdiction. <laughs> he's in this place where nobody has to listen to him for most of the book. And then they do the whole thing where if it's an embassy, then technically it's it's the soil of the other place that the embassy is for. And it's very... he he does a very veterinary thing and exploits the <laughs> the letter of the law, if not the spirit. But they find out eventually after all this thing is happening and Vimes has to get accused of, of trying to kill the king and then gets chased through the forest in his underwear by Angus's brother and meets a, were- a vampire that is the only person who actually knows anything and he knows this because she's the only person in the town who didn't offer him a drink which i thought was a very good detail 
come to find out, the scone of stone that they have or that may have been destroyed or whatever, the original, like the original original, was destroyed probably decades to hundreds of years ago. And the one they have right now, yeah, it's a replica, but people believe in it. And that turns out to be the most important part, is not that it's the exact same thing from hundreds or thousands of years ago. Does it serve the same purpose? And is that what makes something authentic? And that's something that um, we're probably going to get into at length, because that's really the question that gets asked over the course of the book, is what is authenticity? What is legitimacy? And how do those things not exist in a vacuum? And sometimes, how do binaries break down? There's a lot of binaries in this book, not only of gender, like it comes out at the end that one of the dwarf who is sort of leading the dwarf side of this conspiracy, because it's, it's a conspiracy between a dwarf named D and Wolfgang, who's the werewolf, is D is a dwarf who basically says, why are we letting these Ankh-Morpork dwarfs get away with being female and presenting in this way? I can't get away with it. And that was like, it, it was one of those moments in the Discworld books that just kind of like punched me in the, in the jaw because it was not anything I expected. Like looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. The whole concept of she in dwarf culture in some cases, and by some people, it is almost used like a slur, where Cheery is made deeply uncomfortable by the fact that she knows she's not accepted anymore by certain factions of her culture and the fact that they're in a place where it's very traditional, we're led to believe. Most people want to believe that it's better to stick to that kind of tradition but maybe even the traditions they think they have aren't as solid as they think they are. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they all go home. Wolfgang dies. Vimes and Sybil are going to have a baby, which I'm very excited about, even though I can't imagine Vimes as a dad. But I'm sure he will try his best. And yeah, that was my not at all brief summary of that book. There was a lot. There was a lot. A lot happened. Yeah, I thought you did pretty good considering that there's the watch unionizes subplot, yes. the Anguo runs away subplot, and then there's the main story with Vimes where, you know, you have the theft of the scone, the faking of the scone, and then the recovery of a scone. <laughs> And this whole conspiracy thing. And oh, also there's like the clacks and the ambassador disappearing subplot yes. that like kind of ties things together between the werewolves and the clacks and the conspiracy. Terry Pratchett does that a lot where he's got a lot of different, it's all done in third person. I'm going to say kind of limited, kind of omniscient. But what that third person feels omniscient, but you find out later that it was limited. I feel like that's a trick that he does. Yeah, I think there's like, I think he, he can be that third person omniscient, but it's usually in my 
remembrance at the very beginning and the very end of books. Yes. <laughs> but for for the most part, he when when they kind of have the hard breaks, there's no chapters in in Discworld books. Which is good, but also bad, because I am the kind of person who does the thing where I like, oh, I'll I'll either read or listen until the end of this chapter. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> There's no chapters. <laughs> it just keeps going. But there are um, breaks every once in a while, and usually that signals a change um, in point of view. So I think I, I agree with your assessment that, like, third person limited is probably the best overall descriptor of his narration style. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot, it's dense. A lot happened in that book. It talked about a lot. <laughs> yeah, you've got this idea of like diplomacy to extract resources from an unstable foreign power. And you've got like all of these binaries, like social and cultural binaries, which I found really interesting. I don't know, like taken all together, I think the examination of all of these different binaries kind of comes down to like the way that these things are constructed is highly artificial it may not get to like the real truth of the matter and i guess that plays into the authenticity Mm -hmm. idea that you see with the scone of stone as a stand-in for like the legitimacy of the low king yeah so that's a lot to unpack it is a lot to unpack i also (laughs) did want to point out before i forget it reminded me, the whole speech the Low King has at the end where he talks about, not really this, this cone of stone, but he talks about this axe, this ancestral axe that he has. And he basically kind of picks apart the idea that anything can be the same after 900 years. <laughs> and nor should it be, probably. Nor should it be. And he, but he's talking about like, oh, it, actually, I think I have the full quote. One moment, please, listeners. This, my lord, is my family's axe. We have owned it for almost 900 years, see. Of course, sometimes it needed a new blade, and sometimes it has required a new handle, new designs on the metalwork, a little refreshing of the ornamentation. But is this not the 900-year-old axe of my family? And because it has changed gently over time, it is still a pretty good axe. And that, to me, it was kind of like the big... There's always a few big-picture quotes. Probably in the last, like, third or so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of, yeah. of any given any given Discworld book. And I think that was one of them that kind of snuck in there. Because we don't know much about the Low King because he plays things very close to the chest. And he usually speaks through D, who was, Vimes keeps calling her the ideas taster. Yeah. Which I thought was very fun. <laughs> he he translates her title very literally from, yes. from Dorvish, which is funny. <laughs> it's very funny. There's a lot of humor to be had in, like, cheery trying to translate dwarfish from because he only knows like street dwarfish <laughs> which is very rude and, and kind of like cobbled together dwarfish it's not very polite but that kind of reminded me of the idea of having to believe in things for them to be true which is something that comes up in hogfather yes mm-hmm. there's a scene where the dwarf who is the foremost expert on the scone of stone is called in to basically verify its authenticity and even though he like tastes it like he knows it's made of plaster like he knows it's a fake he still says like this is the thing in the whole of the thing and a lot of the things the low king insinuates is that well if we believe it is then it is yeah i think too there's kind of this idea running through this that the thing isn't fake or it's real Like, that Mm -hmm. that is a false 
among the false binaries that we are dealing with. It's it's a false dichotomy. Yes, that that is also a false dichotomy. So we're dealing with so many interesting, I don't want to say false dichotomies, but we have the idea of gender with the dwarves, where for dwarves, they're dwarfs. There is no gender binary. And of course, like biologically speaking, there is sexual dimorphism among dwarves at some level, but that is not discussed ever in public. Exactly. There's no public expression of gender. And the the way that dwarves are dressed and, you know, have beards and everything, that reads as male to everyone else. Whereas dwarves don't think like that. And then you also have the werewolves where Carrot is really struggling to understand Angua's relationship to humans and wolves. He doesn't seem to understand that she isn't a wolf sometimes and a human sometimes. She's a werewolf all the time. And that puts her at odds with both wolves and humans. So that's an interesting sort of reversal is like she's not these two things. She is one separate thing in her mind. Like that is her identity. I guess, like, too, the, the dichotomy is playing to, like, how does an individual's identity, like, feed into and is influenced by, like, these socially and culturally constructed dichotomies? It was all very interesting. <laughs> yeah, and and I think there's, ones that don't have as high stakes also at play, like, there's the, to Vimes, even in his own head, he will never be one of these people. Like, the people that he he's expected to sort of wine and dine and serve small sandwiches to. <laughs> the nobility. The nobility. He's never going to be one of those people. Like, there's a, a moment when he's talking to the vampire lady that has done her research on him. She basically says, you know, yeah, you, you, you were an alcoholic. And he says something like, I was a drunk. I wasn't rich enough to be an alcoholic. <laughs> and even though now he's... He is titled peerage, and his wife is, like, the richest woman in Ankh-Morpork. There is still this fundamental separation for him that he cannot get over between himself and those people. That isn't nearly as high stakes as a lot of the other dichotomies that we see in this book, but I think it is an important through line for his character, because so much of Vimes' identity is tied up in being a copper. Yes. And being a policeman and his idea of what being a policeman is, is is changing over the course of the books. I think we talked about this in our very first episode on Guards Guards and I think I think it's Patrick Rothfuss's reviews where I got this idea where he talks about like it's the it, it's the fall from grace trope in reverse. <laughs> yes. Where now his ideas of what he has to be to be a not just a good policeman but like a good person is changing but in this book we get him taken out of that he basically has a badge that has words on it no one has to respect it yes where he is nobody knows him as <laughs> commander vimes of the city watch they know him as samuel vimes the duke of onk and he hates it <laughs> because who's gonna listen to samuel vimes the duke of onk in a way that that, that he feels is meaningful 
but there was one moment that I think kind of brought home his his feeling of being out of place. Wolfgang calls it the game, where you basically have a human and they get chased through various Transylvania-esque locales by werewolves. And if they... I don't remember if it's if they make it till dawn until they live or if the werewolf is like, you're okay, then they live. It's There's, there's something conditional upon it, but it's very obvious that Wolfgang is not at all interested in letting Vines live. And he's like running through the forest and he talks about having city eyes. And the idea where, like, he knows so much about cities that he can glance at a street and immediately know everything important about what's going on. And then he's like, I never thought that could be a thing with forests. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a very concise way of just summing up how lost he is in this new situation. Mm-hmm. Not only, like, physically, obviously, at that point... Though I did enjoy the fact that he just stumbles upon this house with, like, these three sisters. <laughs> and one of them is like, sir, are you here to ravish us? Like, <laughs> oh, it's so crazy. There's, there's, there's many, many layers at play. I do think it is interesting that for most of the book, it felt like the Discworld itself was in a state of flux, culturally. And this was just, like, one kind of snapshot moment of, like, a weekend <laughs> of what <laughs> that was looking like. Because even though the dwarves and the trolls are still fighting or whatever, like, the low king still shakes Detritus's hand, knowing what that means. Yes. It is kind of like with the axe. Slow and gentle changes mean that it's still the same thing, but that... It it's still useful. Yeah, exactly. I think that might be a good way to describe maybe this. The, where, what I'm calling legitimacy, I think, probably is better described as usefulness. It could be both. It could be both. Maybe that in and of itself is a false dichotomy I have in my head. <laughs> we can have both. But yeah, I think a thing that might be um, a little more fun to talk about and is an interesting take on this whole issue that I didn't actually mention in my summary I forgot until the very end. How could I ever forget? The Igors. Oh! The best gag. They're not as... They don't necessarily move the plot forward like some other things do, but they're the best joke. They are the best joke. In the book, for sure. I love them so much, and I thought it was so funny. I'm like, oh, it's so funny that we just did Frankenstein. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they're sort of Frankensteinian, Frankensteinian. I'm making that up. That's Frankensteinian. I think is how I would say it. Yeah, the Igors are a family race? <laughs> question mark of vaguely humanoid people. Who is it ever answered if they're born or made? I think they're made. I think they're I I think they're made in the way that we would understand what being the what that difference is. They're made in the way that the monster is or the creature is made in Frankenstein where they're they're pieced together from bits and pieces of of other people who have come to an end by some means. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're they like like the Igors I imagine are sort of they seem like scavengers. They're not, like, murderers. No, 
there there's nothing really nefarious going on. They're sort of like a class of people who go around. They're like the servant to have. Anybody who's anybody has an Igor. And they go around, and when people die, they might leave their corpse to the Igors, which is essentially leaving your body to science at this point. And the Igors take the body parts and they, you know, do basically organ donations. Like, say your hand gets crushed in a terrible logging accident, the Igor will fix you up with a new hand. And then out of gratitude, you might leave your body to the Igors, and later they'll give somebody your liver. It's a very, like, beneficial, like, medically motivated scientific thing that they're doing. Like, it's like taking the anxiety about science that exists in the original Frankenstein and kind of turning it on its head and making it very funny and very enthusiastic about, like, what what is sort of gross and terrible seeming at first glance because they're not good-looking. But they're very popular with the ladies, so I will leave that to your imagination as to why. And <laughs> and that's never stayed in the book, but I, I actually just got that myself. So I was like, what? What's happening? It's okay. I, I, I just turned that corner too. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait. <laughs> wait a minute. And at the end of the book, Vimes is like, after an Igor saves Carrot and the captain of the local guard after an altercation with Wolfgang, and he's like, we have to get an Igor. Like, we have to take one back to Ankh-Morpork with us. Like, I need one. And he does at the end. <laughs> he does hire a local Igor who's a little bit weird. He doesn't have the lisp. They do the lisp that you think an Igor, like, the, the cultural idea of what an Igor, finger quotes, should be. And he's, like, this Igor is, like, growing ears on the back of rats and, like, has a jar of something, I forget, but he doesn't He has list. a jar of noses. But they're not, like, cut off from people. They're, like, noses that he's grown and they have, like, little legs and, like, Vimes is, like, I think I can hear them saying, wee! Like, <laughs> out of this jar. Like, it's very, it, it's one of those things, I think your, I think your assessment is correct. It's creepy, Upon a first glance, and at some point turns the corner into being kind of wholesome, but like, <laughs> but yeah, that Igor dies, and they go to the funeral, and all the other Igors are like taking parts because that's what they do. And Vimes is kind of concerned, and I think one of them is like, Well, what are we gonna do? Leave all of it in the ground? Yes. And they think that that's morbid to let something rot like that. So. It's crazy, <laughs> but funny. It's really funny. and It is really, it's really funny and they're very sweet. Yeah. And everyone is called Igor. Yes. Which Vimes <laughs> does not quite get at first, but once he gets it and he's just like, well, I'm just going to keep saying Igor and they'll know who I'm talking about. It's fine. But sometimes they don't. He's like Igor and then he's like, do you mean like over there or do you mean like my cousin dave igor i mean they don't say dave but like you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean <laughs> do you mean like my cousin igor do you mean that igor from down the street like <laughs> it, it's a it's a little bit who's on first yes but with igor. every once in a while <laughs> which igor do you mean but the igors when they say igor and vimes doesn't know what they're talking about and he confirms they're like yes that's what i said and it's like my favorite joke in the entire mm-hmm. book <laughs> 
love it's it so, so much. It's so good, and it does not get old. It doesn't. You would think after the first couple times, but it doesn't. It doesn't. I think it comes up the just the perfect amount of times. Because <laughs> it could have gotten old, I think. Maybe. But the fact that it's like, we have lulls where serious things happen. And the Igors come in. Yes. Yes, probably. I'm excited. I think you'll like how the Igors come in. Or the Igor now comes in in the later books. But I'll leave it at that for I'm right now. I'm excited because he's like a mopey teenager. And I love him. <laughs> yes. And he's like, yeah, he talks gangs. He's like, he like grows things for its own sake and for science, not for like use. And his dad, his dad is like, these newfangled ideas. <laughs> Just have things for science. Oh, they don't say science, but <laughs> yes, that's what it is. But yeah, I love the Igors. But, but they do kind of tie into that whole thing of making yourself into something. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is addressed throughout the course of, of the book. By and large, by the, the the gender aspect of things, but there's um, oh, she doesn't come in very often, which made me very sad because I loved her. Lady Mar Mar Margalata is a vampire who does not drink from humans anymore. It's very Alcoholics Anonymous, <laughs> like it is straight up just Alcoholics Anonymous for vampires, in a way that I thought was actually kind of sweet. <laughs> but she doesn't drink human blood; she only drinks animal. Um, and there's a whole, like, little sequence where we, we get a sor- sort of, again, that little bit limited, little bit omniscient POV on her. Where she's she essentially goes to, like, the community center. And they have the room where they have the chairs that are picked for how well they stack, not for how comfortable they are. <laughs> Which is every community center in the world. And she says, Lady Margalata smiled at the assembled vampires. She liked these meetings. The rest of the group was a pretty mixed bunch, and she wondered what their motives were. But perhaps they at least shared one conviction, that what you were made as wasn't what you had to be, or what you might become. And Terry Pratchett does this thing, we've talked about this in the past few episodes, where he's really good at taking the idea in a book and kind of boiling it down to two or three quotes that are kind of scattered across the last third. And I think you can make an argument that this is one of them. Oh, for sure. Because it is something of, like, what you're born as and what you're made as isn't permanent. Right. If you don't want it to be. Yeah, and I think this is echoed especially strongly in the foil that is Angua and Wolfgang. Because mm-hmm. I think they go and they there's a lot of emphasis on how physically similar they look. Yeah, I believe so. But they are ethically, morally, personality-wise, very different. Even though they grew up in the same house, they have the same parents, like nature and nurture. But Angua didn't want to be like that. Yeah. And Wolfgang is, um, I don't remember what their family crest is. It was really cool, though. It was something like, all men are wolves to other wolves, or something like that. It was something like that. But it was really just about, like... The nature of the face that we show to other people. Oh, yeah. It's like all men are wolves to other men. Yes, that was it. All men are wolves to other men. But Angua is like, no, all men are men to other men. Wolves aren't, <laughs> don't kill for fun or because they got mad or whatever. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too. Yeah. And and with Wolfgang, he's, he's, he's an interesting character because 
near the end, he almost dies like three times in classic monster movie villain fashion. <laughs> and he comes back for the big confrontation at the end. But he, especially near near the end before he is, is eventually killed by Vimes, he can't separate the man and the wolf part of it the 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 physical dichotomy that is a big part of lycanthropy is presenting as a wolf presenting as a humanoid where it's almost like parts of his body are trying to be something else yes and those discrete parts are eventually not compatible with one another like he's this weird mix of the wolf brain but the man body and vice versa and it's in a way that is grotesque to Vimes, but also in a way very sad. Yes. Like, his body is trying to be wolf and human at the same time. And that ultimately mm-hmm. leads to his to his downfall. It's very, it's very strange, because it was also very grotesque to me reading it. Like, that came mm-hmm. straight through where I'm just like, bull. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Because there's something, I think, transformation in that sense. I think there is something weirdly horrific about it. And that might come from a cultural aversion to physical monstrosity like that. Mm-hmm. And that is something that Angua, throughout her tenure in the books, hides from Carrot. Is the physical transformation that she has to go through to look like a wolf and then come back. It's a thing that if you're not part of that group, you don't understand, either because of some ancient instinct that tells you this thing is dangerous (laughs) and you should run, or just because it is not, it is something that is unique to them and their experience of the world. And I think that is something that can be scary to people outside of groups like that when you have something that is that unique. Yeah, I agree. The unfamiliarity with it is what is really driving the horror aspect it's the fear of the unknown yeah exactly yeah it's the fear of the unknown and sometimes that fear is justified in cases like wolfgang who i think his his big downfall like you said was he sees even though he's like i'm a werewolf the man and the wolf for him are two separate things Mm. that ne'er shall the shall the two meet but with Angua, she understands there there is no separation. She's always her. She might just look a little different. And that's something I think I think is a relatable struggle to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all have disparate parts that we struggle to integrate into a whole self effectively, no doubt. Yeah. Being a person is really hard. It's guys. so hard. Speaking of fear of the unknown, though, one of the things I think we were interested in talking about was the idea of the knockermen in dwarf mm. culture who go into tunnels and there's like a gas that, if flame hits it, which all their lights are flame based, then it will explode and that could obviously be very bad to your mining operation so they send these guys in like welding suits only it's like you know leather plates or it looks more medieval (laughs) and they go in with 
a little a little candle that the flame turns blue in the presence of this gas and then they blow it up and sometimes they make it out and sometimes they get caught in the explosion and die and they have to go in in these dark tiny tunnels alone with the you know are are they gonna find the gas and are they gonna get exploded and they're all alone and isolated and it's very I don't know kind of mystical almost yeah there is something vaguely mystical and I think in Vimes's view almost spiritual about it because there's a the thing with with the dwarves in Ankhmore Pork and on the Discworld is they staunchly believe they have no religion <laughs> and no they have no religion they have no priests and Vimes as he as Cheery is like telling him this story is like being a dwarf is a religion <laughs> and the phrase is like people went into the dark for the good of the clan and heard things and were changed and came back to tell and the whole idea of the Nakramen that came back were the Nakramen who became kings I remember, I had to like take a minute when this part came up in the books. <laughs> I often do with Terry Pratchett books. I remember this was a long time ago. This is probably over 10 years ago. Um, I have family that lives in Kentucky. So we went to go see, it's like the Mammoth Caves, I think is what they're called. Yes. And we got to a part where we just had our flashlights and our guide was like, you know, if you guys feel comfortable with it, we can turn off the lights. I have, I cannot imagine anything that dark. <laughs> There is something vaguely instinctual and primal in me that remembers that moment and still gets scared. Oh, yeah. Even though it's like, you're with a whole bunch of people. You have a flashlight. You can just turn it on and it'll be fine. But there's something about being under the the ground like that, in the dark, that is like the antithesis of our evolutionary progress. <laughs> But yeah, I, I I remember that moment as I read, as I read this, and I'm like, that shit will make you believe in God, I'm sure, if you're like, I'm out of here by somebody's grace. But yeah, that that was a part that really was kind of vaguely introspective. Yeah, I think in in a way that I didn't really expect going into books. I purposefully did not read anything about the plot of this book before I went into it because I wanted the takes to be fresh and raw. But, uh, yeah, I just, the things about dwarf culture are so interesting to me because you have the knocker men and you have this other class of dwarves who are so traditional that they won't go above ground typically unless they absolutely have to. And then they wear, like, full, they make sure that no, that nothing of themselves is exposed to daylight and are, like, carried around and they're, like, very traditional and there's this idea of, like, you can be basically excommunicated from being a dwarf, and then, like, you're not a dwarf anymore, and it means you're not subject to dwarf law. And Vimes is like, why is this a problem? And Cheery's like, it's a big problem because, like, that's what dictates marriages, births, deaths, like, the things that are so fundamental and universal. Like, you no longer get to take part in those things. Especially the whole idea of excommunication, I think, really ties into the fact that, like, their culture is their religion. There's no extricating one from the other. They are, mm -hmm. they are the same. Exactly. 
But yeah, it. I don't know what it was about the Knockerman. Maybe it was because it was really late at night. I often listen or read these books late at night, and I get real philosophical and introspective, as we all do, when you're still up and you have no good reason to be up. <laughs> there was one last thing I wanted to touch on that I thought was interesting that my mom actually brought up when I was explaining the plot of this book to her. She's very helpful, my mother, in that she usually listens to me explain the plots to her so that I know kind of what I'm talking about when I get here. (laughs) And I was telling her about the concept of the fat deposits, and she was like, oh, so like oil. Yes. And and I was like, holy shit. (laughs) It's just like oil. But the thing that that the fat deposits kind of stand in for, which I thought was interesting, was... Uh, which kind of ties back into the whole idea of what is diplomacy and what are wars really fought over. <laughs> and it's it's a question that keeps getting brought back up because Captain Vimes, or Commander Vimes, excuse me, at some point he wants to do the right thing and he wants to punish the people who were bad and all this other stuff. But in some capacity, he cannot do that because he now has to think about, well, what does Ankh Morpork want? <laughs> And at the end of the day, he does come back to it, even though he is intensely sleep deprived and his wife has to kind of scoop him up and be like, it's okay, honey, I got this. But Ankh Morpork wants a stake in the resources of, of Ubervald, and the biggest one is fat. And I think this is, it was something that obviously was not the focal point. I think there's other books. Jingo, I think this was more of a thing. Yes, for sure. In this that book of the whole idea of why people fight and what they hide behind to cover that and it's kind of brought up again in that vampires anonymous scene what does the act of drinking someone's blood symbolize and um lady margalotta talks about how like it's kind of like their 12-step program like the first step is figuring (laughs) out well what do you really get out of it like yeah you get fed but what do you get and why do you want it? And she's talking about how she you have to come to terms with the fact that what you want is power. Mm-hmm. And why do you want power? Because you want control. And she knows Lord v- Vetinari, and she talks about his ideas on control and how all control begins with the self. And I thought that was interesting because every once in a while we get a little tiny bit of insight into our buddy Havelock. <laughs> it's usually just a few moments where that kind of puts some of what he does into perspective. Because that is his big thing as the patrician, is control. Where there might be some chaos happening in the city, but it's it's organized chaos <laughs> in some ways. It's chaos that, that you can set your clock by. Yes. And I, I don't think with, with Vetinari there's anything inherently malicious about that. There's nothing necessarily, if you just look at it, there's not a whole heck of a lot that's nefarious. I really think he just appointed Colon to be the, the captain because he knew he wouldn't want to do it. And that it would, be, it would be funny. There's a bit where he goes to, he has a meeting with Colon. And he's, like, driving around, and, you know, his assistant is, like, talking to him about it. And he's like, well, even though there's kind of this power vacuum in the watch and Vimes is gone, there is no crime in the city, even though there's this whole thing where the watch has basically 
dissolve. But there's absolutely no crime because people are afraid of what Vimes will do when he gets back if he finds out that people took advantage Mm -hmm. of him being gone. So there's been, even though the watch isn't there, like isn't functioning correctly, there's even less crime than normal because, you know, people don't want to deal with an angry vimes and like the patrician is really self-satisfied about this and it's so it's really there's no risk there's no risk to him when he's like well why don't we just have fred cole on to it like (laughs) it's just like it's like he's looking at an ant farm and he's just like i just want to see what happens Yeah, it was really, it was funny. I, that whole, that whole thing did not really do anything, like, for the plot, but I, it was funny. (laughs) It was, it was, I think I needed that comedic relief. Oh, yeah. Because uh, the Sam Vimes plotline is, like, I think the the main plotline is kind of heavier than usual. Yes. So I think you, you, we needed to have that meanwhile back on the ranch kind of, (laughs) kind of comic relief. It, it was interesting because there's this, there's this ongoing anxiety throughout the book that just escalates when um, it has to do with the Clax Towers. Because the Clax is how they get information now. Yeah, they use semaphore on these towers spaced evenly apart. Kind of like the fire thing in Mulan, but with like, I don't know if it's light or paddles or flags. I can't remember. But they like signal to each other so you can get messages Whereas it would take, like, a week for a caravan to go. You can get that information in, like, a day or a couple of hours, so. But Vimes discovers with the assassin, who I was kind of sad when the assassin died. Just because there was no reason for him to die like that. Even though he was an assassin and he killed people and all that stuff. Only when they're paid to. It is dishonorable (laughs) to kill someone if you haven't been paid to do it. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) (laughs) They discover that the local Clax Tower, either the people were killed and taken, or they ran away, or something. But in any case, no information is getting in or out. There's a, an inherent, I think, claustrophobia to that, that though Vimes does not have it alleviated, the reader has it alleviated because we're like, oh, things are fine. It's okay. Yes. <laughs> Thing, it's just another crazy day. Here at the Ankhmore Pork City Watch. It is that that I think really I've seen a lot of people compare these uh, or rather compare Brooklyn Nine Nine to these books at times. And I think right. that, that particular subplot <laughs> that is a very accurate um comparison. It really is like just this kind of crazy ensemble comedy. Yeah. For a while. Especially, I think especially the early books, but Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely we should put that out in a tweet. Like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine fans, get on this train. (laughs) No, like, for real. It is so funny. Because I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine really does a lot of similar things with exploiting the genre. Yes. (laughs) And genre expectations, which um, is something Terry Pratchett is very, very good at. Um, But did we have any final thoughts on the book? Well, did we want to talk about Sybil? Sybil is the only thing left. Yes, I want to talk about Sybil because I love her. I love her. I think Sybil as one of the, her and Angua and Cheery are very dear to our hearts mm-hmm. as the, the women in, in the book. 
I was like, oh, wait, there's way more women in this book than I thought there were. Good on you, Terry Pratchett. Right. <laughs> I know. Our standards are so low. I know. That we Rachel. notice when we don't notice when he just hurdles over them. Yes. I was like, three women, not just one. What three like, women and they're all different? What? <laughs> they all are well de- What is happening? All um, well developed and have their own emo- emotional storylines? What is this? What insanity. I know. I think Sybil is sort of the the star of this book in a weird way mm-hmm. because her love of dwarf opera saves them. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> um at one point she charms the dwarfs with her rendition of like the famous dwarf opera into letting them go see the low king after this huge altercation with Wolfgang where they recover a version of the scone. <laughs> and they're like there's no precedent for you to see to see the king and she's like wait and then sings a passage of a dwarf opera that's like the most tragic of love stories mm-hmm. from and they watch it like the previous evening as part of the pre-coronation you know pomp and circumstance and side note this is not related to how wonderful sybil is but vimes asks her well like who was the man and who's the woman and sybil just gives him a look and is like they're both dwarves <laughs> it's one of my favorite yes things because you get that. I feel like that's a thing that people in not heterosexual relationships complain about because people are like, well, which one of you is like the man and which one of you is the woman? And it's like, we're both or we're not. Like, that's not it's, a thing. That, that, that's not how that works. That's Wasn't there a meme? With, like, there's, the a maiden? Lot of, there's a lot of memes. <laughs> I think my favorite came out of when Kurosami was canon and Makora was not. <laughs> <laughs> Legend of Korra. I will never forget the we pop in the biggest bottles when Makora is canon tomorrow. Like I will never fucking forget that. But yeah, it was the whole thing of who it was the handmaiden and the feudal lord. That's yes. what it was. And apparently that's what lesbian relationships are. <laughs> someone has to be the handmaiden and someone has to be the feudal lord. And I always thought that was the funniest fucking thing. Because really all it says about how people think about and they they apply, like, heterosexual expectations on non-heterosexual couples is there needs to be a power imbalance. (laughs) And I'm just like, are you okay? (laughs) I'm concerned. Real talk, though. Anyway. Anyway, that is, but no, that is, that is, that's a good callback. (laughs) Because that is kind of true. I miss that meme. It's been out of circulation for a while now. I know, I'm we like need to bring it back. Vintage. Fingers. Vintage memes. We need to bring it back. An excellent 2015. <laughs> Smell that bouquet. But Sybil, light of our lives. Light of my life. Sybil, the way that she's talked about in the book is she's never, she's a large woman and she's never put down for that. And I think Pratchett treats her with such respect and almost a tenderness. I know you mentioned there's one passage where it talks about how she had to make herself small so that other people could feel big and how being kind and friendly made people assume that she was stupid. One, I felt that on a level like just as a woman and I figure that it's like, there's an extra exponential increase in that feeling the larger you are as a woman, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. 
Lady Sybil, she was kind of a tangential character for a few books, and then and then she came back, and I I really like that we got to see more of her because it also means that we got to see more of her relationship with Vimes. There's one particular moment that I really enjoyed, and it says so much more about Vimes than it does about Sybil. <laughs> They were attacked on the road, like someone threatened her life, like Vimes had to shoot somebody, like all this all this stuff happened. And it all kind of catches up to her when they're at this inn on the way to, to U- Uberwald, and it's, she just starts crying, which is a totally normal response to all that shit. And Vimes just kind of pats her on the shoulder because it's not like he was the kind of man who couldn't quite get over the hurdle of kissing his wife in public. <laughs> But there is such a tenderness, I think, between them that is mm-hmm. not, it, it's not presented in the same way as Kara and Angua's relationship. Right. Like, I, I think there's there's a lot more synergy with Vimes and Sybil than even I think they would probably think. And it's a lot of how they react to one another, especially how Sybil kind of like, she supports him without babying him. Yes. Which is a really important distinction, I feel. Especially with his drinking. And he has, um, he does have issues with anger, righteously so. But, <laughs> but, I, but I think her big thing with him is I think she can tell when he would do something he would still feel bad about later. Even if it was necessarily the right thing to do. But, but that, I think, never crosses that border into support that isn't reciprocated in some way. Like, yeah, he's kind of got the dumb husband thing. Like, there's the whole thing about (laughs) parallel processing, where you can, like, be holding a conversation but be thinking about something else. Yeah. (laughs) That he can't, he finally can't do that when at the end of the book, Sybil tells him that she's pregnant. And he's like, but how? And she's like, well, the usual way. (laughs) Which I thought was very sweet. And I've talked about this all the time. I like that they're older. Yes. It's nice. It's it is nice. We talked about this. When we talked about guards guards. It is still true today. I like the fact that she's kind of like I do they ever say how old how old her and Vimes are? They're at least in their 30s if not there. I was yeah. 40s. I I I wonder if they're like fantasy middle age, which really means like upper 30s. <laughs> Cuz I think I think she's probably in her upper 30s. I could see 40s for Vimes, but they're definitely like of that age, between probably 35 and 45, I would say. Like, that's not really normal, I think, for fantasy, for the fantasy genre to have something, a relationship between two people that isn't about, like, the young true love thing. Yes. Don't get me wrong. I love stories like that. I eat that shit up. I love it. <laughs> but it is so affirming, I think, to have characters of varying ages go through that because... I think it is kind of hard to break yourself out of the frame that, like, there's a timeline for things. And if you don't do X by a certain age, then your life is over. Like, I'm kind of struggling with that right now. I'm 26. I'm finally at an age where I'm going to be 30. 30 did not (laughs) feel like a real age, guys. No. Yeah, because I'm 27. So, like, I'm looking 30 straight in the face and it's like, when did you... Not become a distant horizon. When were you, like, two blocks? (laughs) And I think that that's, some of it is part of our culture as, like, American women. Oh, yeah. Is. Yes. (laughs) You know, even though it is 
for many, 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 many reasons, the timelines like even our parents used weren't exactly feasible now for like symbols of adulthood. It's still something that I think you're you're still so encouraged, depending on, of course, your own personal social and cultural stuff. You're encouraged to still adhere to. Like we joke that I'm like now now I'm having the Jane Austen crisis <laughs> because I'm like 26 and I'm not married and I moved back to my parents and all this other stuff. All of which is stuff that like if I think about it for more than five minutes is stuff thousands and th- upon thousands of people do. Yes. It's not not normal. It's just a thing that people do because of varying circumstances. But there is still something in my head that's like you're Mary Bennett and you're going to die alone. At the age of 28. Oh, my god! And I'm just like, but that's not a thing. It's usually, like, that thing where it's, like, late at night and it's just, like, I'm going to die. This is it. This is all I got. But when I think, I think when we see stories of people who either find love a little bit later or are able to have those really strong, fulfilling relationships along a slightly different timeline, I think it is very affirming that, like, there really is no timeline that everyone follows. But Sybil, I think, as a character, is is she's so warm and she's so earnest all the time that even though it breaks my heart and I, like, I really identified with this as a bigger person of the whole thing of you existing to make other people feel better. Yes. In one way or another. Like, that is real. Regardless of whether that is a thing people impose upon you purposefully, that's real. And, like, wanting to make yourself feel small. And, like, like I almost legit cried. Like, that was a legit thing. Terry Pratchett cut to my soul from beyond the grave. And it was, <laughs> like, it was a lot. I think Sybil, like, she's, she's just wonderfully, she is just one example of the many, like, really full female characters that we get. And they're allowed to be messy. And they're allowed, like, Angie was just a mess sometimes yes (laughs) in a way that is intensely relatable and cheery still trying to kind of find herself in this new world where there's options for her that she never knew were viable and like it just kind of reinforces this whole full world that exists within these novels that i think the longer i read i read i read them i kind of take it for granted just because it is so consistent and I remember you saying this was way back. This was a long time ago. This was like pre-episode 10 about how there was the whole thing where people were like, he writes women too well. Like he can't have actually be be writing these. Uh, I think we get more of that in The Witches, which is obviously very female centric. But all it is is basic empathy. That's <laughs> <laughs> all it is, gentlemen. I don't know how else to tell you this. But really, the key to writing really good characters like that, regardless of gender, is just being empathetic to the very wide spectrum of emotion and situations and and different circumstances that make people people. And as Vimes always says, that is that, there's the phrase, isn't it? People are always people. All right, robots, that's going to wrap us up for this episode on Terry Pratchett's The Fifth Elephant. This is the fifth installment in our remedial read-along series, and the uh, other four are available for your perusal on any of our feeds. Uh, Next time, we are going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, We are going to be doing an episode just about 
Dungeons and Dragons, the majestic, amazing D&D extravaganza. You'd still have time to send us questions because we probably won't be recording that for a little while. I believe what we want to do, we're going to talk about our experiences with D&D. I'm going to prepare some stuff where I'm going to talk about how I DM. It's going to be um, a fun time. We're just going to talk about a little bit of a different kind of gaming than I think I usually end up talking about. But you guys will finally hear the tales of what goes on when we do the thing and roll some dice. Which, it's, I think it still kind of surprises me that people are as interested in that as much as we want to talk about it. So, <laughs> that is going to be next week. I do not believe we finalized the rest of our schedule yet, but once we do, that will, of course, go up on the socials. Which are? Oh, yes. This is my job. This is your um, job. I just throw at you every time we whoops. do these. I know. I mean, I should be ready for it because we discuss the outro ahead of time and it's not like i don't know it's just every time like oh i have to know things okay so if you want to reach us on twitter we're at remedial studies if you want to reach us via email we're remedial studies podcast at gmail.com we're on instagram which is remedial studies same as twitter and we're on tumblr which is remedial studies podcast at tumblr.com. So I hope you will send us some messages. We are really excited to do this episode and any questions you have would be super awesome. And if you like the show, make sure you rate and review. We've gotten a couple more ratings. I was on iTunes and I think we're up to like eight now. That's pretty cool actually. (laughs) So thanks yeah, thanks, guys. I mean, it is one of those things where we, we, we do this, by and large, for fun. And as an excuse to hang out with each other via the internets. But the fact that, like, we've had as many people as we've had, like, interact with us and say that the show is, like, a part of their day and, like, means something to them. Like, that's so beyond, dudes. That is so cool. Yeah, it's it's been really great and almost, like, a humbling experience. So. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate everyone who listens to the show, who rates the show, reviews the show. You don't even have to, like, interact with us in any way. If you're out there listening, that is more than enough. Thank you for that. Yes. And uh, even if you're a robot, I still love and respect you. Yeah. The robot. <laughs> what was the robot from last week? Was it Minsk? Yeah, Minsk. In, Minsk. in, like, Barov- in, like Barovia. Bavaria. <laughs> Barovia will be next week. I think it may. I think that's in Belarus. Don't Belair- quote me because... Belarus, yes. Thank you. Oh, oh my goodness. I'm so terrible at geography, and now you all know. <laughs> yes, Minsk in Belarus. Uh, oh, my goodness. Are you okay, Minsk? I want to know. Because the terrifying thing is, if that was a real person that downloaded our show almost 500 times, who are you? <laughs> or multiple, just a cavalcade. A I know, that's the thing. That was like when we had a bot that was in like Greece or something. The only thing I could think of is someone found one of our episodes on classics and, like, used it for a class. That was <laughs> the know. only thing I could think of. It's it's robots or a demented teacher. Yes. It's, there's no and In, there's in no both cases, like, you good? Are you good? <laughs> Please email us. Let us know. Yeah. All right. I All think right. we need to leave now. Yes. Okay. Bye, robots. Bye, robots. <laughs>